Welcome to the JCR, a Massey podcast where people and ideas intersect. My name is Margaret Dillion, PhD student at the University of Toronto and junior fellow at Massey College. Today, I'm joined by George Fallis, Professor Emeritus of Economics at York University and the first York Massey Fellow here at Massey College. At York, he was previously the Chair of the Department of Economics and served as the Dean of the Faculty of Arts. Professor Fallis has published widely on the roles and responsibilities of universities and is the author of the books Multiversities, Ideas and Democracy and Rethinking Higher Education, Participation, Research and Differentiation. Today, we are going to be exploring the past, present, and future of higher education. Thank you, George, for taking the time to join me today in the beautiful visitor's room. <laughs> Thank College. you for inviting me. Awesome. Um, well, well, our first section is going to be on the past. Um, so we will be exploring the foundations and early traditions of higher education, examining the original purpose and structure of universities. Um, so my first question is, how did the early universities in the 19th century envision the role of education, and how has this laid the groundwork for the modern university? Well, the way I like to think of it is, and here we have to be careful that we're um, very much the English-speaking world as I talk about it. We in Canada, with the exception perhaps of Quebec, are most influenced by UK and the United States. So if we talk about the earliest universities, we can talk a bit about the late 18th, early 19th century university mm -hmm. as represented by Oxford, Cambridge, and also a number of uh, colleges in the United States. And these were small, they were usually residential, so the students lived at the university. Mm -hmm. uh, they were male. They had a very a curriculum very much oriented toward the humanities, history, languages, literature, philosophy, including moral philosophy, logic, rhetoric, this orientation. And the purpose of this university was to provide an undergraduate education. They didn't have graduate education and what we often call a liberal education, the one which emphasizes that it's knowledge for its own sake, so that it's not to prepare for a job, it's not to uh, develop a mastery in a discipline, it's knowledge is its own reward. Secondly, it's to have the student experience so that when you have people with different orientations and focuses, whether it's history or philosophy or whatever, what I would now call multidisciplinary thinking mm -hmm. is very important for your knowledge. But really it was to develop the mind through rigorous study, but also the character of people. So these were the first universities. And interestingly, they were uh, usually had a religious affiliation. They were self-governing and many of the professors were also clergy and there was not much of what we would currently call research. Mm -hmm. Yes, and 
Um, how has this laid the groundwork for the modern university? Well, interestingly, I don't know whether the right phrase is laid the groundwork. Uh, I would think of it as it's one component mm -hmm. of what becomes the modern university. So the first big trend is industrialization and urbanization. But I think we also have to appreciate that we also want to keep our eye on the big trends in the polity or the politics or the nature of the governmental system. And in this case, I think what we observe is a kind of democratization going on. So from these undergraduate focused universities based in the humanities, we then added to the undergraduate curriculum, social sciences and natural sciences. Then we added graduate schools and research, particularly doctoral education as a way of preparing the next generation of researchers. Then there was another idea of the university that had professional schools. And then sort of a drawing out some of the things I've talked about was this idea that the university through its research and professional education should make a contribution to society, that there should be a degree of applied research. And this was the time, I should have mentioned it before, the earliest universities got no government support. They were largely through uh, the church or other private uh, endowments, whereas through the 19th century the government began to support universities, both in their operating costs, their capital costs, with a focus on making universities accessible to people from the working class and the middle class, and also that they should have more applied fields. So all these different components came together in the 19th century. So I would argue that the basic structure of the modern university, or what is sometimes called the multiversity, these many purposes are often in tension in, or even in conflict. So that part of the nature of the university is this what I call conflicted pluralism, that there's always a tension between teaching and research, between undergraduate education and graduate education, between applied education, preparing for a job versus liberal education, pure research versus applied research. These are all embedded in the university mm -hmm. and a part of what makes the modern university this dynamic. Um, you emphasize the role of democratization of the university um, during this time period. What prompted that democratization of higher education? Universities are crucial in all sorts of ways. I mean, in one very basic way, they're a fundamental component of equality of opportunity, that the idea everyone should have access to education regardless of their ability to pay. A lot of thinking about democracy says the people should have the right to have the opportunity to be informed, and that the universities have a special role within democracy as a place of deliberation. The university should be thought of as a fundamental institution of democracy, just yeah. like a free press, and that we need universities, I think, to do more to appreciate that they have this role in democracy. That's very helpful, and I think that also kind of answers my other question about what 
prompted governments to take responsibility or fund universities um, away from the clergy and and religious institutions. Yes, and it was it was part of this whole transformation of the role of government yeah. from they say fair to say no we're we're going to intervene in the economy and we're going to provide basic services so of course in the late 19th century it was primary education was pretty widely available and free yeah. but then came secondary and mm -hmm. in the really after world war ii mm -hmm. then post-secondary or higher education was the began to be the sort of focus of saying the government should try to work toward ensuring that everyone of ability who wished to attend, there would be a place for them, regardless of their ability to pay. Um, thanks so much. This is very helpful in providing the framework for our next section. You're listening to the JCR, a Massey podcast. I'm Margaret DeLeon, and today I'm speaking with Dr. George Fallis, Professor Emeritus of Economics. So now we'll transition into the present and the future of higher education. So my first question is, um, how have technological advancements, socioeconomic changes, influenced the accessibility, inclusivity, and relevance of higher education in our current society? If we think about the present, I think we should just briefly sort of highlight what happened after 1950, so that in that previous 19th century, we talked about urbanization and industrialization and the development of the university with these various components somewhere in the 70s and the 80s we moved to what i think is well characterized by daniel bell as post-industrial society some people have called it the knowledge-based society so that with this change uh, bell emphasized how the, the idea that uh, theoretical knowledge was the key to moving forward things. And then with the continued commitment to equality, the society, we both expanded the university system and implemented a college system. So now well over 55% of the age cohort by the time they reach 26 have achieved either a university or a college uh, accreditation, which makes us among the highest in the world if we combine these two. So what lies ahead on that front? My own opinion is that we're still in a post-industrial society, certainly. Uh, I think we will continue what has been evident for the last 10 years, but also probably for the next future, a greater emphasis on what we call STEM fields, yeah. science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and medical and allied health. So I think the humanities will continue to struggle in this emphasis on STEM and medicine. I think the social sciences, to a degree, uh, will continue to struggle in yeah. this continuing shift. Um, interestingly, I think the, the system is now big enough that we don't need to focus on expansion to deal with accessibility questions. What we need now is to focus much more on the quality of the undergraduate education and think about the um, 
different degree programs we offer and mm -hmm. the structure of those degree programs and so on. So I think more and more people are of the view that barriers to participation in higher education are less and less financial and more and more about, uh, if you will, the background and the culture that people grew up in. Mm -hmm. So the accessibility question will continue. I think the terms of discussion will will change. Definitely. A lot of people are trying to think about the role of new technologies on higher education. Much of the debate from the 1990s on has been about could technology be used to deliver higher education mm -hmm. to people where they don't have to be in the classroom with the professor. So I think most of this technology, what it did was make, um, if you will, distance education better. Yeah. But then the debate evolved further. And interestingly, I think some of the people who were most interested in high quality teaching became interested in it and began to explore, could we combine technology, you know, uh, streamed lectures, access to the internet sources and so on with in class to produce a higher quality course and education than simply people in class. And the idea, is, I think it's fair to say that people, uh, there was a pretty strong conclusion that a hybrid or a blend was the highest quality. And then of course came the pandemic and Zoom and work from home and our sense and experience of what is possible with meetings mediated through technology has just changed quite profoundly. I think what will emerge is again a kind of hybridization. So people might take one of three courses online, each course itself will be a blend, etc. But you know, there's, uh, but it, it won't replace. And I think people will always appreciate that uh, an essential part of education is being in a room together with other people who want to study it and have read it and want to think about it and someone who has a deep understanding of it, uh, who wants to uh, teach that and together they can, we can learn. Mm -hmm, definitely. I want to tie back to your point earlier about the STEM fields and how the, the STEM fields and medicine will eventually or currently dominate um, higher education and how humanities and the social sciences will continue to struggle. Um, there's a good amount of discourse about the death of the liberal arts degree and how many um, individuals see the role of the university is as a, a place to gain skills for the workplace. What you think about that and what how that will shift over time? Uh, more and more I think that uh, we've become so future oriented, we're terribly ahistoric and students are coming out with very little historical sense of things. So I made a proposal in my book but it was that uh, in an undergraduate degree, we should 
say that you know one course a year has to be devoted to a vision of liberal education and so you but you could organize your um, liberal education around say the place of medicine in society and so you'll see how social norms changed and how medicine advanced and you'll have to think about the way society evolved and access to medicine and so on and you, you'll think about the world out of a liberal learning orientations so I, I think that's something we've lost and increasingly in this uh, we're all prisoner of our current day but I don't think we've generated students that have a strong sense that what they should be also cultivating is a kind of civic moral sense of how they live themselves in the world and the kind of paradox of the old elite university was even though it was just the few partly they were being educated to go on and hold elite roles mm -hmm. but to also think about that leadership position as one where you have an obligation and a responsibility to be moral and civic minded now we of course often look at them and say they didn't achieve that but <laughs> that was part of the vision you know I, uh, some of the m more interesting questions about uh, morality and science and thinking broadly about the implications of your work have come out of AI researchers now and medical researchers so mm -hmm. one of the things I like to think about is that this was a curriculum development they had at Harvard Medical School and the question was how do you encourage doctors to be empathetic yeah. to their patients and uh, what they gradually came back with was well one way was to read novels and that through novels you often are put in someone else's shoes and you see the world through a different eye and you can begin to appreciate the nature of someone who's different than you and empathy is developed through the humanities and so they offered that so I teasingly said we should get economists to read novels as a way <laughs> of trying to get empathy amongst economists but uh, so those debates are still there mm -hmm. but I think they certainly in the undergraduate curriculum don't have the place they once did. Um, I really liked what you said about the role of the humanities and the social sciences in fostering morality and humanity. Uh, this is a and this is now just well, partly I, I guess I'm so influenced by looking at the United States yeah. but the worry is here in Canada too certainly that the question of, of access broadly speaking I think is now shifting toward inclusion mm -hmm. which is required that we examine our curriculum so it started out with the curriculum is all stuff written by dead white European males and so first it was to find women's writing and voices in what we read and think and recognize women's contributions but then it came much more non-European voices but now it's it's even sort of I think going deeper and people are asking you know how do we uh, in the spirit of First Nations reconciliation try to examine our curriculum itself and is there something about our curriculum which is non-inclusive is there something about our curriculum which is still retains 
heritage of Western imperialism or colonialism. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of interrogation of the curriculum. But I think a lot of people outside the university are finding that extremely troubling because it, what they are hearing, and they're hearing it in their high schools now, that somehow education is teaching their children that our society is inherently racist or our society is inherently, uh, you know, biased against LGBT or whatever. And so this notion of, of uh, access is sort of penetrating into people's uh, own homes, if you will, and what's their role in educating their children and so on. And uh, I think a kind of um, populist anti-intellectualism mm -hmm. is going to be very much a part of our politics mm -hmm. going forward. Obviously Definitely. the extreme example is the United States, but yeah. I don't think we're immune from it. Uh, and I think that's going to be extremely difficult for the university because with it comes an anti-intellectualism. Uh, I don't think yet we've really grasped mm -hmm. a uh, um, how we should respond or the depth of this dissatisfaction with yeah. uh, with with universities and some of what they do i saw in the it was a new york times article by a, um, a very respected conservative uh, columnist who spoke of the progressive academic complex which he was you know, it's like evoking the military-industrial complex mm -hmm. as shaping society. Mm -hmm. Well, he said, now there's the activist academic complex. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, tells you how right-wing populists are sort of framing society. There's this thing called the activist academic, and they'd probably add mainstream media into it, mm -hmm. that's reshaping our society, and we don't like that. Yeah. And yeah, so it's interesting that you mentioned the activist academic because that ties back to what you said previously about the role of professors in public debate mm -hmm. and their responsibility to um, contribute to public scholarship and disseminate their research, and that's kind of been misconstrued as activism. Well, I think it's a very hard balance to strike. Part of one's role is to become a teacher who encourages social change mm -hmm. so that the university itself is seen as an agent for social change. And mm -hmm. it's uh, certainly fair to say that uh, it's a, a activist, progressive academic complex mm -hmm. uh, that's, um, it's the concern to people. And uh, so it's the notion of the, that the university contributes to the debate versus is an agent of change, I think, are related but somewhat different. Mm -hmm. But as I think when this was back in the anti-poverty days, when they were some said of, if you're doing social science, very often you ask questions about differences in outcome. Yeah. And it's virtually impossible to engage in this research and not be a social critic in some way or another. So it's, uh, but nonetheless, I think this is a, um, uh, it's not quite a new role, but it's been an expanding role that emerges very logically out of the academic work that people are doing. Again, um, uh, 
don't think we've adequately appreciated that this may cause problems for the rest of the world. I mean, I can remember reading, this would be 20 years ago, when it said, these were university presidents writing, saying the university itself has no position. The university is just a framework in which individual academics do their work. Okay, so the institution doesn't have a position on anything. In fact, it should be making sure that as an institution, it doesn't have a position on these things. Well, Quite neutral. Yes, it, it's just there to provide it. You know, it's not, you shouldn't have a president standing up and saying the position of the University of Toronto on this is. Mm -hmm. But we've just gone through this past four weeks of uh, struggling to deal with Hamas and the Israeli uh, follow-up, uh, you know, the univ every university was being asked to stand up and say, what yeah, is our position yes. on, yeah. and being criticized for being too one-sided or not, you know, critical enough on one side or another. This mm -hmm. is a, um, quite, a, quite a change for universities, I think, although we've slipped into it and, you know, celebrated our contribution to UN development goals or, you know, this kind of thing, but um, we're being if you will, geopoliticized. And so the institution itself is having to make a statement, which mm -hmm. um, we certainly didn't uh, so much in the past. What is your opinion on this shifting role? I, I think it's inescapable, but uh, I, I must say I would, I, I would rather the university continue to try to think of itself as a a framework where yeah. individuals or teams of individuals could do their work and then hold a position on, uh, but the, the institution itself um, doesn't have a position. But I think I'm rather naive on that. <laughs> this world of having to take a position as an institution is a, a growing role. And in a, as we struggle with a lot of these tectonic shifts, if you will, I think that's also going to be a, something for the university to struggle with. Mm -hmm. Thank you again, Professor Fallis, for joining us today to speak about the past, present, and future of higher education. I'm Margaret DeLeon. You've been listening to the JCR, a Massey podcast, a production of the Junior Fellows at Massey College at the University of Toronto.